What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I've got a an old friend. We've been through some times in in very distant ways. His name's Sam Hammington, and uh, I don't know how Sam would introduce himself. So I'll, I'll tell you how I introduce him because <laughs> because because <laughs> we used to, we used to do a lot of online chatting back in our I would say around twenty four twenty five through most a lot about a lot about like underground rap and then South Korea because Sam's been over in South Korea for a very long time and we're going to talk about South Korea careers creativity uh I, I when I'm being like if I was a few drinks in and and I got a bit nostalgic because I've got I've got a few friends like Sam we don't necessarily see each other very often but people who we've talked about struggles over the years and now I see them doing really well and so if I was to be a bit drunk and slurry I'd probably say Sam is like the most famous uh Australian white Australian male actor in South Korea and probably has been for the past however long he uh, however long he's been going so Sam how do you is that a very useful introduction it's not very useful uh, is it but I won't <laughs> say it's useful it's not terrible um for a minute there it sounded like we were dating online for a while the way you kind of uh, started off but yeah I think you know a lot of people say most famous Australian in Korea um and I've been referred to as the first foreign comedian in Korea. Um, I generally don't like titles. I'm just like, I am who I am. I do a job. I wake up, I go to work, I come home like anyone else. But yeah, I guess it's all part and parcel with what I do for a profession, which is working in television in the entertainment industry. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, but, I but, but I guess I do it a little bit differently because I'm doing it in a second language, not my, my mother tongue, and I'm doing it in another country, um, which kind of makes it a little bit more of a rarity. Yeah, and you speak that second language pretty fluently, which was one of your party tricks on TV back in the days. And then, I mean, is it is it fair to say, not to get too lost in this kind of stuff, but is it fair to say that it's difficult for you to go outside by yourself? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there are times where it can be. Um, I won't say difficult. It can be a little uncomfortable. Okay. But, um, now, not to blow any horns, but if I go out with my children, it's even worse. I mean, my children have, um, my youngest son who just turned one has more followers on Instagram than I do. Um, and my oldest son who's turned, he's about two and a half has like twice, nearly three times as many Instagram followers as me. So yeah, with them, it becomes really difficult. Well, we, we should get into that because we've, because they're part you and part your Korean wife, and and I also have. Well, I hope they. I hope they're part me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> that's really awkward. Come on, man. It's like I stumble around words. They're mixed race kids, right? They're mixed yeah, race yeah, kids. Yeah. I got mixed race. Half kids. Korean, yeah. half Australian. Yeah. There, there you like go. yourself. Yeah. Uh, my kids, when they get, my kids actually often get identified as being Asian in in America, and they'll go, "No, I'm half Australian." And like mm. half Australian, is that really a thing? But look, I'm kind of curious to talk about that in a second. But uh, I wanted to set I wanted to set that up in a kind of silly way. It's it's an awkward introduction, I know. But what we're actually going to talk about is like, what are you going to do with your life? Because you and I used to talk about this stuff in our early twenties online, yeah. middle of middle of the night. And like in my mind, I was like, "Oh, you know, I'm burning out at work." I was doing the magazine and radio, and that, we actually met through the the online hip hop and message board. I was like, oh, maybe I'll go to like Thailand and be a Thai boxer or maybe I'll go to South Korea and be an English teacher because that was a thing as well. How did you get to Korea? Let's start there. Uh, I, I mean, for me, getting to Korea, I guess um, it was just a choice I took in my education. Um, I After graduating from high school, and when I say graduating, I mean barely graduating. Um, 
I kind of scraped through and went through through to TAFE, which is for non-Australians is like um, for Americans is the equivalent of like community college. Um, and that's when I started studying international trade and realized that living in Australia, we live, our neighbors are Asia, you know, growing up in high school, it was like, yeah, you get to study two languages, French or German, but France and Germany are halfway across the world from Australia. And then I kind of realized that an Asian language is something that's going to be essential in the near future for people that are wanting to get into, particularly into business in Australia. So after um, going to, after doing a year of TAFE, I transferred to university and did a double degree. My arts degree was in Korean studies. My business degree was in marketing and um, studied for a year and a half, went on exchange student to Korea, spent a year here, met a, uh, a lovely woman at the time, went back to Australia, graduated. What am I going to do, do with my life? I've spent you know, three years studying Korean. Maybe I should go and improve on that. And my girlfriend's in Korea at the time. Hey, two birds with one stone. And I thought it would be a two or three year kind of uh, opportunity for me to get some work experience, improve my language ability. And um, that was nearly 17 years ago. Hmm. And your Korean is pretty close to native, right? I'd say it's it, it's um, native, maybe not so much. It, obviously, I can get through the day speaking um, Korean. I can watch the news in Korean and get most of it. But having two young children under the age of three, I was just saying to someone today, my Korean ability and my English ability have gone down the toilet exponentially <laughs> because I'm speaking at their, I'm trying to speak at a level that they can understand all the time. And I'm, I'm losing my language ability based on that, which has been a little frustrating lately. Hmm. But you do what you have to do when you're a parent. That's, I mean, it's... I'd say my Korean level would be, yeah, I, I'd say it's, it's pretty fluent. Okay. And it's, it, is, it must be interesting to people now to think back to an Australia that really didn't identify as being part of the Asian region. And it was probably, it was a Paul Keating, I guess, who, started to, who was a prime minister at the time. Or, or even after he was out, who started to really promote that idea in a bigger way because we were very Western Europe-centric uh, as, as a country. And it's, it's an interest because it's, and it's, so, it's so far away. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, even then you look at someone like Paul Keating and he was well ahead of the game at the time. But even now in Australia, I still think a lot of Australians don't really take much notice of what's happening in Asia. I mean, you look at what's happening in, in China with the economy over there. You know, they're the leader in the world in terms of um, clean energy, in terms of what they're doing with their mobile phones. They're, they have the biggest selling mobile phone company in the world. I mean, they're beating Apple and Samsung. Hmm. And in Australia, we tend not to really take on board what's happening. And I say that in terms of the general population, as hmm. opposed to people that are Asia specific in their um, profession. But the average person doesn't know what's happening in China, Japan or Korea. And I mean the things that are happening in this region are just massive at the moment. I mean, there, there is even in the ent entertainment industry, film and television and music, the, some of the stuff that's coming out of particularly career at the moment is just, you know, mind boggling. Australia couldn't even compete with the quality of things that are being produced in particularly in Korea. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the average Australian quote unquote knows what's going on in England? Um, 
I think they probably have a better idea of what's going on in England. They probably don't have a great idea of what's going on in England or even the States. But I think just the fact that it's it, it's so easy to kind of get that information based on you don't have language barriers. Um, and you just look at the news or you look at television and everything is, is so focused on, you know, it's it's the UK, it's Australia, it's it's America. We kind of tend to skip over the other countries a little bit more. Hmm. I guess uh, colour, like I, 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 know that, I don't know if this is real or not, but I kind of believe there's one human race, but I guess skin colour and the owners of the media companies and their skin colour plus the English language makes some of these uh, these news beats a little more accessible to the companies that are pushing them. Yeah, I hate to say it, but in, in a country like Australia in particular, it seems like what you're seeing on in, in print and media, and it, it's just a little bit more whitewashed than other parts of the world, considering that we are a multicultural country that's been born on immigration. Hmm. You know? Although, yeah, and that, and that we don't really talk about this, but the immigration was restricted to people with white skin well into the 1970s. Right. Uh, 67. I'm not sure exactly when the white Australia policy finished, but yeah, I mean, that was in place for a long time. But if you look at what's happened in the last 40, 50 years, there's been obviously a big change in, in the face of Australia, mm. but Australia has, so I, I don't think Australia is catching up with the reality of it quickly enough. Not at the mainstream level. And I think that's because there's a, a generation of, or two of people who people are living longer, right? And they keep hanging on to the things that were cool when they were young. And I, I, that's going to cause a lot of problems. It's, All right. It's, so it's, it's better. It's kind of, you know, and this is playing devil's advocate. I think people are just, they're in a comfort zone and they don't want to get out of it, even if it could be for the betterment of, you know, their overall improvement of life. All right, let's go back to mid twenties. So you had to, what kind of jobs did you have? Um, well, I mean, for me, I, as soon as I graduated from university, I was over here in Korea, but in Australia, I, you know, I worked in bars. Um, yeah, that was kind of like the most of it, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, working in bars, I think I, I, I washed dishes and, um, worked in restaurants and then came to Korea and, um, kind of had an opportunity to work in television. Then I had a job in, in marketing. Um, I mean, most of my career here in Korea has been in the entertainment industry for the longest time. Yeah. Cause, and um, you did some, you did some radio, right? And were you, did you do oh, English, yeah. English teaching? Uh, I, I did English teaching for a very small period of time. Um, and then when work wasn't going great, I went to go back into it and it, it just seemed like opportunity kept knocking for me over here and the opportunity to do something came up and I said, I'm not going to teach English. I'm going to take this opportunity to do a television show. Um, and that just kind of catapulted my career over here for me. Mm. But I mean, for me, even um, with the exception of when I was in marketing, my initial periods of time here, um, even teaching and, you know, initially trying to work in the entertainment industry was, it was a struggle. And there was so many times I'm like, I'm going to pack my bags up and I'm going to move back to Australia. And I just, I just felt like I had no direction in my life. You know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do or what I was going to be doing. Mm. And even I, to be honest, even now I work in an industry that doesn't have job security. 
And I'm always wondering what I'm going to be doing in six months time, 12 months time, five years time. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, you know, for me, that's just, it's almost become the norm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, like when you start to do work that is more gig like, and in the creative industries, it's maybe it's an hour. <laughs> in a week or like if you're a stand-up comedian it's maybe maybe you're doing a few sets a week and then you've got to work out what to do with the rest of your time because mm. the way that you spend your time is very different to the way that everybody else spends their time and it can make you feel unusual it's it it, it is an interesting thing an interesting pressure to have to work out how to cope with which was the first show that you appeared on was that bang comedy uh i guess the first real big opportunity i mean i'd done some Small stuff, but the first opportunity for me to really get my name out there was um, a show called uh, Gag Concert, which was a um, yeah. sketch comedy show here that's been going here in Korea for, uh, I want to say it's been 10 years, maybe, um, if not longer, because, yeah, I mean, I was doing it in 2005 and I did it for two years. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess it's comparable for listeners to maybe compare it to something like SNL, um, performed in front of a live audience um sketch comedy and did that every week for two years i think i meant gag uh what was it called gag concert gag concert yeah. yeah i just gave it another name bang comedy i don't know what that's <laughs> i was i was translating <laughs> didn't need translation yeah uh and then and so while you were doing gag concert because we did you get a, a contract for that for regular appearances or was it just a, on a oh, call basis no 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 the contract um to be honest, in my experience here, I haven't really signed many contracts with what, in, in terms of doing t film and television. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, if you've got something, you've got a job. And if you don't have something, it's kind of like, well, you're going to have to find something to get that job back. Mm. So it wasn't a contract. It was just that there was a sketch that we could maintain or, or start a new sketch for that period of time. Um, yeah. Okay. And then is it, feel, it feels too abbreviated to jump to real men. I hope I didn't make that up either. <laughs> but the show, real men, real men real was men. a breakthrough moment for you, right? Yeah. Real men was, um, I mean, uh, try to think that was after gag concert had finished. It was kind of, um, I'm really bad at maths. It was like about a seven year gap. Um, I'd done, um, English radio in the meantime and whatnot, but your yeah, real men was kind of a breakthrough for me. Um, mainstream, um, reality TV variety television show here on was Sunday evenings. And it was essentially half a dozen celebrities going in to do their, um, Korean military service, which is compulsory for every Korean male. And we went in there and did basic training and did the training that the regular soldiers would do. And it just, the show just kind of blew up, like in terms of ratings, it was hugely successful. Um, and that allowed me the opportunity to win awards. Um, I think I was probably the first non-Korean to award the, be awarded best new talent, um, which was kind of, pretty special for me um mm. yeah and that kind of cemented i guess my name in terms of entertainment industry here in korea how did you get cast on that show seeing you as you hadn't been on tv for seven years 
Well, no, I hadn't not, it's not that I hadn't been on TV, but it had been sporadic. It hadn't been regular okay. performance. Um, and I'd been invited to be on a talk show um, the week before. And I'd kind of um, said to myself, as I caught the subway to the, sta- to the um, TV station, I said to myself, if this doesn't go well, I'm just going to quit. This is my last, if I don't do well here, I'm not going to do TV ever again. So I kind of walked in and just didn't really have any cares in the world. I'm just like, whatever, let's just do it, get it over and done with. And as I left, one of the, the hosts of the show sent me a message and said, you know, you did a really good job today. And I said, oh, thanks. You know, I appreciate the kind words kind of a little sarcastically. And he's like, no, I'm serious. And before it went to air a week later, the producer of that show got in touch with the producer of Real Men and said, I think you should cast Sam Hammington in Real Men. Um, so, yeah, it, that's how that happened. Right. I, and I was, it, it, that was, like I'd said before, there had been so many times I was prepared to go back to Australia and it was right then on that moment that then Real Men happened and just kind of, that changed my life drastically. Yeah. No, I remember in our 20s, it would be late night and one of us might pop up a message to the other person going, what are you, what are you thinking about in life right now? And we'd invariably get onto that topic of like, I don't know, you know, I was doing a magazine, working in agencies and you were doing your thing in South Korea. We would, we would kind of talk about these things and it was always at like 10 or 11 or 12 at night. Uh, can you name drop some of the other actors for, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there are about 10 people who are really into Korean culture who will recognize these names immediately. And if they don't, their parents will. Who, who um, else in, the show? in real men uh, was uh, Kim Suro. There was So Gyeong Sok, um, Park Hyung Sik, Lucy Young, um, Miru, Son Jin Young. And then we had a few other, um, that had a few changes throughout the season. Um, so, um, I'm trying to think who else was in the show. There was, I mean, um, Kim Dong-yeun, who's the UFC fighter. Um, he joined the show later on in the season. Um, Henry, who's, uh, incredibly popular in China doing film and television, uh, joined the show later on in the season. So yeah, I mean, it was quite a big show that had, quite a fair share of um, important names within the entertainment industry here. Okay. And um, I was, I was just the random, the non-Korean, the overweight non-Korean kid. <laughs> Let's see how he gets through basic training kind of thing. And, and, you know, I guess there was, I was there for comedic effect because I wasn't going to succeed at most of this, these exercises, but there was also, you know, the ups and downs of it, the emotional roller coaster that you go on being in the military. Um, you know, we're having tear gas training where, they, you, you know, you take your gas mask off in the middle of the this enclosed environment and you have to breathe in the tear gas or, you know, 48 hours training with sleep deprivation, um, things like that. And, I mean... I don't want to blow my own horn. The, the one thing I can blow my own horn about is that I never gave up. And I think for a lot of people, they kind of, that's what endeared them to me throughout this show. 
and I was always honest and upfront. Um, you know, I guess yeah. that's who I try to be in life. And also in, in, in across the years of being on TV in South Korea, how would you describe your comedic perspective? Like what, what role do you play for the Koreans watching you? You know, you, like you said, you're, you're pretty, how tall are you? You're six foot plus. Uh, no, no, no. Huh? Just on the edge of six foot. Yeah. Uh, me too. I'm like 180 centimeters. Just couldn't cross, couldn't cross yeah, the threshold. Yeah. And, it could, and, it's exactly the same. Yeah. 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 And you describe yourself as a large guy. For a while you had a bowl haircut. You had bangs, didn't you? Yep. I had the bowl haircut. And I think initially it was kind of, you know, play a bit of the, um, you know, a bit like an Abbott and Costello kind of a Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber kind of character for a bit. Um, and you kind of act up and give the audience what you think they want to hear. But then when you watch the general audience in this country become a lot more, um, I wouldn't say aware, but they, they know what's going on. They know if you're just kind of blowing hot air. Mm. And I think that for me was a turning point when I started being more honest with myself and the viewers picked up on that. And I think that was something they also appreciated. Yeah. Because very... I could, I could quite easily get on TV and say, Hey, I love kimchi. I love this. I love that. Everything's perfect. Um, and I'm always happy as opposed to saying, you know what? I, I feel kind of uncomfortable and, you know, or I'm scared or, you know, crying on TV or saying, you know what, I actually don't enjoy this food, but that's just a personal preference. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that was what was somewhat endearing to a lot of the viewers here. Yeah, because I mean, there was a, I think I saw some of the early videos and they could probably have put you on stage had, had you not say anything and then you start to speak fluent korean and that was the party trick right and then it evolved yeah. and at the same time i remember you were also posting some pretty well honest and sharp comments about korean politics yep. on, the, on the internet as well which it was a bit of a risk because you're definitely a visitor uh and uh look i'm related to south Koreans, so i feel i can speak from some place of, of truth but south korea closed its its borders and doors for close to 400 years i think and was called the hermit kingdom it didn't let people mm. in and so it's very conscious of visitors and also you know with, with nationalism right now and i don't know what it's like in the day-to-day -day discussion in korea but the idea of pure bloodlines so if you were to marry a korean you're breaking mm. some pure bloodlines that's a legit thing even now and definitely when we started uh dating our <laughs> our people as well um yeah, when you... and i think but i think that's part of it i mean for me it was i was at the stage of you know i've been living in the country for 10 years i kind of feel like i can have somewhat of an opinion on on different points of view now mm -hmm. and that was kind of a bit of a turning point for me i think up until then i'd kind of been a little bit worried about how people would perceive me based on my opinions um but I mean, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. Someone's always going to disagree with it. Someone's always going to agree with it. As soon as you can become comfortable with that, I think it makes life a little bit easier to live. Mm -hmm. If you keep worrying about trying to please everyone, at the end of the day, you're never going to get it done. Someone's always going to be disagreeing with what you think. When you wake up and realize, hey, I'm just going to say it and I'm going to be honest. And, you know, people won't, agree with me but they can appreciate your honesty and have you done political comedy 
on the variety shows? Because there's also a huge talk show scene in South Korea, right? Yeah, there's definitely a, a huge uh, talk show scene here. Political comedy, especially political satire, is something that's never really been done here. Um, Korea bought the license for SNL a few years back, mm. and they don't do the show anymore, but they were probably the only um, network that kind of did uh, political satire. Um, you see it occasionally, but it's still something that's not, I wouldn't say it's taboo, but people try not to touch it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I mean, for me, it, you know, there's a few things I'd try not to be too, you know, politics and, and, um, and religion. <laughs> the two things I generally try not to talk about. Mm. Okay, so going back to Real Man, that blows up. That's top top ten, right? As far as TV shows in South Korea, did that get much viewership outside of South Korea? Um, it didn't get a great lot of viewership, I think, because it was based on military culture. And you know, one of the most important things about it here in Korea is that all the Korean males have to go to the military. Mm. Um, I think it got a bit of viewership in maybe like Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, but obviously in some other countries, it was quite a sensitive issue. I think mm-hmm. China was obviously very sensitive towards it. Um, and I, I've heard stories, I don't know how true they are, but I've heard stories that North Korea, um, people up there in government were keenly watching the show. Um, but how true that is, we'll never know. Okay. Uh, and obviously a big part of that show was trying to get people who never went to military or would not have to go to the military to, to develop some empathy to understand what's going on. And you must have got some pretty amazing feedback and stories from people about how the show helped them understand maybe their sons or husbands, boyfriends. Could you tell us about any of those? Yeah. You know, you'd get messages occasionally about a mother saying, you know, I, the show has kind of allowed me to realize what my son's going through on a day-to-day basis. And it, you know, I've reached out to him. We've become a lot closer because of that. Um, you'd also hear it from, from girlfriends or fiancés about their boyfriend and being in the military and, and kind of, yeah, being able to empathize with their position and, and what they're going through on a daily basis. But I think for me, the most important um, story I took away from it, um, there was one, he was, um, I'm not sure if he's, correct position but he was like the head of the base that we were training at he was the top guy and he came up to me and he said i just want to tell you you're doing a very important role for us here at the korean army and i said please tell me more i'm not quite sure what you're talking about and he went on to talk about uh children of mixed heritage because uh prior to that children of mixed heritage generally didn't go to the military here um, because they were worried about kind of, um, you know, racial injustice that could occur based on their heritage. But the laws have changed and it was for a while, it was, you could elect to go to the military. I think now it's become compulsory. I'm not too sure on the laws there. It's, it's, um, but he said, what you've done is you've come on TV and showed to all these parents all around the country, especially parents of mixed heritage children that if you can succeed without even having grown up in Korea, that, you know, it's going to be 
easy for their children to come into the military and just, you know, being able to get through their training. Hmm. And that, that for me was pretty big because we didn't have children at the time, but to be able to have a role where I could kind of facilitate that for children that may be a little bit, well, I say children, but they're young men, young men that may have to join the military at a later stage in life. Um, and if I could show them that, Hey, this guy in his late thirties, who's overweight can do it. You know, a kid in his twenties, who's healthy is obviously going to be able to get through with flying colors. Mm. You know, that for me was kind of like, I felt like I was doing something really positive beyond just being on the television show. Well, and over the 20 years relationship that you've had with South Korea, how have attitudes to mixed race kids especially changed? I think it's changed a hell of a lot. I mean, in the last few years, we've started to see a lot more, um, a lot more mixed race children be successful in the public eye in terms of whether they're models or singers or actors. Um, and I mean, here in Korea, we're kind of dealing with a few different issues at the moment. We have one of the lowest birth rates in the world. And 2018 was the first year where the Korean population actually started going down. Um, and it looks like it's going to stay that way for a while. And one of the, the biggest groups that is having children, um, mixed race families. Um, and then you've got an aging population. So there's so many issues going on here. And it's obviously something that the government wants to try and deal with as well. Um, but I think if, even with my children being on um, the show we do at the moment, The Return of Superman, it, what it's doing, I think, is kind of opening we're opening our doors to the Korean population and showing them our daily life and kind of showing them that, Hey, we're not really that different. Okay. Uh, one of the parents may not be Korean, but we're living as best as we can in Korea to live a Korean life. And I definitely see it's becoming a lot more positive for these children's future. Mm. As, as far as the idea of being a foreigner who's trying to live a Korean life, I mean, you must have come across hundreds, maybe thousands of people who've visited Korea and some of whom have stayed. And there must be certain, I don't know, stereotypes of, of, of person who comes. Could you talk us through some of them? I think the biggest stereotype you hear is that people who can't succeed back in their own home country. Um, I think with English teachers being such a big demographic in this country, uh, for a long time, there's been a stereotype of they can't get a job in America, Australia or whatnot. Um, you know, for a lot of people, I think it's almost like a gap year. If you graduate from university, it's an opportunity to travel the world and kind of see different cultures and, and experience it. So I don't agree with the stereotype, but there are obviously people out there that think that's the case. Um, Obviously, you also have a lot of US military based over here. Mm. Um, and I think with the younger generation, um, there has been some kind of negative imagery based on that. Uh, the older generation is probably not so much because they've had to deal with the Korean War and what happened in the last, you know, 80 years. Um, I think <clears throat> stereotypes are definitely changing because we're seeing 
uh, non-Koreans get into so many different industries now. Even in television, there's become a lot more um, faces on television that are non-Korean that speak fluent Korean. And it started to break down barriers. Like you mentioned earlier, the Hermit Kingdom is what Korea has been known for for such a long time. But it's becoming a lot more global. Mm-hmm. And there was times I'd, I'd walk down the street and I'd see another white guy and I'm like, wow, well, there's a white guy in this neighborhood. But, and, and my friends would be like, hey, what are you talking about? You're white too. Um, but I mean, now it's just kind of like, you, you, you're just starting to see people from different parts of the world. You know, whether it's other Asian countries, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Africa. Mm. And and also Korea's done a very good job of exporting its culture. I mean, it's probably one of the most, if not the most influential pop cultures in Asia, at least. And you, you're starting to see K-pop acts on on the huge events in America. So they've 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 done well and they funded it. Uh, a lot of the movies back in the 2000s were funded. And I think some of that funding disappeared in some of the movie. Was there a year or two where there just weren't that many amazing Korean movies, which seems like a bizarre thing to have happened? Yeah, I, to be honest, I haven't really kept up with uh, the film industry as much as I'd like to have. But I mean, uh, they're always making such uh, great content. But like you said, I think in terms of like just exporting, um, pop to the work Korean pop to the world at the moment. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I travel, travel the world for work. And when you meet people and they're like, they list all these names of actors or singers or, or whatnot from Korea. And you're just like, wow, mm-hmm. I I'm amazed at I, from, for a while there, I thought it was just, you know, smoke and mirrors and you'd watch news stories about, you know, they call it the Korean wave and they're like, the Korean wave is, is gone over to this country and this country. And I'm like, you know, the media likes to sensationalize things. And that's what I thought it was until you actually go there and visit yourself. And you're like, wow, you've got to be impressed with what they've done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Considering, considering the language barrier. I mean, you look at a group like BTS and they're on shows like the Allen show there, you know, the late, late show with James Corden, all these high-profile American talk shows that mm-hmm. other countries, there are well-known performers that haven't even been on that show, but there's this group of, you know, young guys that are singing and maybe two or three of them speak reasonable English and they're on this high-profile show. I mean, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what makes it even more amazing is that South Korea was a third-world country and until the 70s as well right and then it became the the most the country that industrialized the quickest in the world and has just kept on going i mean in the last 60 years the the things that this country has done in terms of its economy is amazing no other country can compare with it Mm. i mean i i don't know uh, china's economy as well but i think obviously you look at what china's doing and china's done really amazing stuff but from the end of the korean war up until now this country was devastated by that war Mm. but to turn it around i mean that is that's unseen unheard of Mm -hmm. yeah i I remember traveling there a couple of years ago and i hadn't been in 
10 to 15 years and you could really feel this the speed of change there it's 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 a i mean seoul's an amazing place it's definitely it's it's probably not as touristic in some respects as a bangkok or uh, tokyo or whatnot but it's, i think it's so uh, so worth the visit and the pass through and the mountains are beautiful uh, so going back to real man that blows up are you still wondering at that point what are you going to do with your life did you have an agent did you have much foresight into your the, the, the next six months 12 months how did you approach um, that? well i mean with with anything like this what when the show's rating well you know you've got a job but when if the ratings go off the scale you never know what's going to happen um yeah i had a, a management company that i've been working with at the time um and and things seem to be going well i mean in terms of getting sponsorship deals and endorsements based off that show everything was going well but you know um you ride that high and then the show comes to an end the season's over and that for me was kind of like that was a bit of a wake-up call because all of a sudden you're like well you're not getting the phone calls like you used to you got to find something else to do and you twiddle your thumbs a bit and with this kind of work when you're out of work for a little while even it may not be that long but it feels like you know four weeks can feel like six months yeah you know you start banging your head against the wall you get a little stir crazy um some people do it really well i've kind of later in life i've become more of a workaholic when i was younger i kind of felt like i had an adversity to work um you know i was trying to get out of work as much as possible now i'm trying to work as much as possible so it it yeah for, i mean for a while there it got a little stressful and i guess particularly at that time my wife had got pregnant as well um and yeah work was in a bit of a lull and you think well what do we do now you know do we give up do we find it you know do i find another profession um i kind of got into small business with my wife at that time and um she'd opened a dessert cafe and then we expanded into a opened a bar as well mm. um but yeah i mean is that still going uh with the kids we actually decided to to get rid of that mm. um my wife felt that she wasn't with uh, William, our firstborn, she felt like she wasn't there enough for him and was missing out on important milestones in his life. But also, it probably wasn't as successful as we would have liked it to have been. And, and based on that, it was just like, let's just bite the bullet and say, let's just get rid of it now. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, that makes it more stressful as well. You think you have a business and that can kind of maybe be the next thing or at least carry you through to the next project. Um, and you start reevaluating your life all over again. You've got a child on the way. You've 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 run a marathon, and you're you're over fifty percent of the way through the marathon. Do you give up, or do you push through, knowing that it could be a long time before you get to the end of the marathon, or even you may never complete it. But if you quit in the middle of it, you never know what's going to happen towards the end. So. I guess for me, it was kind of a, a, a decision. It was just like, well, I'm not happy with the position that I'm in based on work, but you know, I can't really give up now. Mm. Cause you, you picked up a few ads, right? TV commercials. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, with the Real Men, there was obviously a lot of opportunity for that doing commercials and, and endorsements, um, which obviously helped. But then when you start a business, there's money that gets invested in business. Um, when the business doesn't go as successfully as you'd like, you walk away with less of your initial investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I probably spent, or spent's probably not the word, lost um, <laughs> some money in that uh foray into business so yeah. yeah lesson learned it's always funny when a comedian is careful with his or her words uh, <laughs> what when you had your first child how did that affect you especially in the context of not necessarily not like not working a full-time job you know i know i've spoken to dads who've had their firstborn who've been fortunate enough to live in a country where they're able to take a couple of weeks off off a full-time job and going back to work can feel really underwhelming to them because like we, i just have my i just had this baby this is the most amazing thing ever and w- how is work even going to compare to that and i should be at home and they they spend it can be several months at least a few weeks in this uh kind of moral dilemma about like how do how should i spend my days now knowing they still have to earn money when you're not having to turn up at a at an office every day. How does how did it affect you? Did, did do you relate to that story at all? Um, I do and I don't. I mean, not working a nine to five, you know, I get days off throughout the week, and so I get to spend that time at home. Even now, when I'm I'm you know working regularly, you still have those down days. Um, so for me, it was more about just had William, best thing ever, most amazing experience. Um, and then I was like, well going to have to find something else in terms of work. I'm going to have to, and I kind of bit the bullet. There'd been an offer that had been sitting on a table and I'd, on the table and I'd kind of been ignoring it and ignoring it. And we talked about it and said, you know, we don't think it's right for us. We don't think it's right for us. And then with the birth of William, with work not coming in as steadily as it had been, I kind of, yeah, bit the bullet and said, you know, it's once you have children, I think the most important thing for me is that you, your self-respect, your pride, you kind of have to just drop it on the floor. I'm not going to let my self-respect and my pride stand in the way of me putting food on the table for my children. Mm. Um, you know, that may mean, hey, if I have to make money and I have to go and clean someone's toilet, I'm going to go and clean that toilet if that means that my kids can eat. Mm-hmm. And, and that for me was kind of like, well, I'm going to bite the bullet. It's not something I want to do, but I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, William's here. We're going to start thinking about that being more serious. And yeah, I don't, I can't say I relate to, to fathers in that situation. I understand where they're coming from. Absolutely. You know, for a while there, I wanted to be home as much as often, but in my line of work, when the work's there, you got to grab it mm. and you've got to grab it by the scruff of the neck and yeah, shake it and shake it and shake it until it dies. <laughs> and then, <laughs> sorry, sorry that, was, that was probably too gruesome, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, you kind of want it to stay alive. I would have thought, what do you do when you, <laughs> yeah. when you're feeling so crazy, you know, cause I, I look, like, I think there are a lot of people who do strategy type work listening to this and our roles are moving increasingly into that freelance type of life and your life is the extreme freelance type of life so how do you feel those those restless crazy times do you have daily habits 
Do you just spin out of control? I, I tend to spin out of control a bit. I go in a bit of a tailspin. And and by that I mean I'm just like around the house, I get a little frantic and I get a allergy. I guess it's kind of like what someone would be getting off an addiction. Um yeah, it's for me that's probably the most stressful time of my life is knowing that I don't have the jobs there. And you're kind of sitting there twiddling your thumbs. So I mean it and that's something I'm dealing with at the moment is inevitably that that same process is going to come again later on in life. So I'm going to have to find ways to get around it. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think is being more create, being more creative and whether that's being uh, creating more content for myself, as opposed to just being, Hey, we'd love to have you on our show, but you have no creative input. You're just there playing a role in a show. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think creating content. The other thing I, I used to do was just, try and find my own slice of soul and that would generally be on the side of a mountain um and just put some headphones in and just listen to a podcast and Mm -hmm. climb up a mountain the your first point around i've I've seen this theme i've got a daughter she does a lot of performing and She's, you know, I think she's only 10, but there's a bit of pressure to, there's a little bit of pressure, not from us so much, but to think about, you know, what she wants to do with the rest of her life. I try to give her context and saying that we've got, we've got time, but I, and she loves to perform. And and I say to her, look, perform, but also make, be the creator. Cause at some point you, you'll you'll have more control and you'll be able Mm -hmm. to express yourself even more fully if you're making it and performing it. And at some, at some point you might just be the maker of the thing and have other performers. And I do see this thread in a lot of people's lives that I'm reading. Uh, I wouldn't say it's by any means scientific, but that a savage recommitment to personal creativity and self-expression is a valid way through a lot of this stuff, whether it's just a day of listlessness or a decade uh, there, there seems to be something in a lot of the stories I come across. Uh, there could be a bias there. I know that when just go paint some stuff, or but but also as your to your point, do it on your terms, not just providing other people some content. Do it how you want to do it as an artist. Are you yeah. writing stuff now? I I'm kind of I've I've got projects that I'm I've got on paper, and I need to kind of take it to the next level. Mm. Um, so. I'll be honest, at the moment, I'm just waiting for 2018 to just shut the door and say, it's time for 2019. I'm just going to let this year slide through. I'm trying to take it as relaxed as possible mm-hmm. and hit the ground running next year. Um, but yeah, um, writing stuff. But also, I mean, we're living in an era where there are so many opportunities and it's become so much easier for people to be creative. I think it's really unfortunate if people are sitting there saying, I need to do something, I need to do something. And they're not taking up these opportunities. I mean, a perfect opportunity is what we're doing right now. Podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's podcasting, whether it's um, platforms like YouTube, where you can create visual content. um, Even if it's just, you know, photography, painting pictures, there's platforms for you to show people your work. Or you can just, you know, create your own work and and keep it on a hard drive. Whatever it is that you want to do, but it's become so much easier to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's unfortunate. And whenever I meet people that say they want to do something creative, for me, it's like, hey, 
anything I can do to help, if it's going to get people out of a stage in their life that they're unhappy with, if, yeah, if I can help you, I want to do it. And I think it's just right now, everyone's, everyone I talk to, they've got their creative juices flowing. Everyone's trying to find something new to do. Mm -hmm. And it is that the key to is you can control yourself. There's nobody else being the puppet master telling you when you have to get to work, what you have to do and how you have to do it. You choose to live your life by your own rules. Yeah. There's a couple of things that come into play. One is getting your personal identity in a way that you can latch onto and basically by saying I'm an artist, you know, and however you want to define it. And then you have to take responsibility for that artist and, and get it out. However you want to get it out. Some people will do that every day on the internet and some people will build a catalog and publish that every year or two or whatever it is. Uh, and I'm not going to lie, like a lot of this for me, when I do these kinds of podcasts, they're actually really good sustenance for, for my mental health. Like I, these mm. kinds, these kinds of conversations with people I enjoy, uh, it is an act of, it's really meaningful to me. It's, it's creative, it's social, and it will keep me going for a few days. Uh, so it's not, uh, and also knowing that it, it does help people in strange and interesting ways as well. I, I think you touched on a really important issue when you said it, it's good for your mental health. I think when everything has become so much more accessible, I think one of the biggest struggles that people deal with these days is mental health. And, you know, a lot of people medicate, a lot of people don't medicate. But one of the great ways to kind of get through any mental health issues you may have, how big or small, is to be able to do something for yourself. And in that creative field, I think that definitely helps. Mm. You know, and it could all, it could be something as simple. And I, I remember when I, I was dealing with depression myself and um, the, the, um, the psychologist I went and saw the, just recommended to me just before you go to bed at night, put your thoughts down on a piece of paper. And it's just like writing a, a personal diary every night before you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and just got me through it all. I so relate to that. There's a book called the, there's two books I've been recommending to people recently. One is the artist's way by Julia Cameron. And the other is man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl and Julia Cameron she she was one of the people who really popularized the idea of daily pages daily writing right stream of consciousness you can't get it wrong if you're angry write to yourself that you're angry if you want to write in a different voice write in a different voice and i did that for probably six to eight weeks through summer mm. uh, this year and it really broke me through i took a couple of trips and i knew that i wanted to start this book and so i came back from a trip and i was like if i want to be a writer what do I have to do? I have to write. It's really simple. So what else, what can I get rid of? What can I remove from my life that gets in the way of that? So I closed down all my co-working space access stuff and I just, I go write. And now I'm 42,000 words into a book and the stream of consciousness, getting, getting the thoughts out and also sometimes doing it as an act of play. So yeah, if you're feeling crappy or you grew up with something that's not that great, write it down and then maybe have a play with it and just keep writing and keep going. And it, I, I totally relate to that. Hey, what would, what would you do with your life if money was less of a constraint or less of a thing? Would you do what you're doing now? I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love what I do now. I, I enjoy being able to bring a little bit of sunshine into other people's life. Being able to make other people laugh for me is just, it's one of the, one of the best things you can do. I mean, there are days I go to work and I feel like shit. 
and I'm like, I don't want to do this. But if I know that it gives someone else in their life 30 seconds of comfort, I've done what I'm meant to do for the day. If I had more money, I'd probably still do it. I'd do it, but obviously the levels of stress probably wouldn't be there as much. Um, I've never thought about that. No one's ever really asked me that question before. I'd love to travel the world and try and, you know, do something with that, but I don't know how I'd make a lifestyle for my children like that. It would be kind of cool though. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I, I don't know. I think the other thing for me would be to get into the production side of things like we talked about before, the creativity and being able to, if the financial resources were there, I'd love to be collaborating with people and, and getting other people's content out there. Yeah, I would have thought you'd have a pretty big platform for that. Uh, I mean, that's something I'm still thinking about getting into later on in life. Mm. But, you know, I think a lot of the time it comes down to timing as well. Mm. A couple of last questions. What are some of the things that you talk about with other actors in South Korea that are conversations or topics or themes that generally don't get public attention? Don't get public attention. Yeah, what are the what are the things you might talk to each other about late at night that don't tend to get public coverage? Okay, I think for me, one of the uh, I think in this industry, one of the things that probably doesn't get as enough enough coverage and deserves a lot more is that it there's so much glamour and glitz associated with it that people think like you're you're super busy and you're always out doing this and that and going to these amazing events and you've got all these friends. But in reality, I think it's probably one of the loneliest jobs in the world. Mm. Um, you know, you turn up to work and you work with all these people and you, you walk off set or you work off, you know, wherever it is you're filming, you walk out that door and that's it. You're done for the day. But that kind of association with those people is not the same kind of association you'd have. I think if you're working in an office environment, um, because it is such a random job and you're meeting, you're not meeting the same people all the time. And that in itself, I think leads to obviously loneliness leads to, you know, issues that people have with depression and, and whatnot. And I've talked to a lot of people in the industry and they feel lost, you know, mm-hmm. they, they feel sad. They're not happy with their life. You know, they may be making money that, and they may be successful at what they do, but they're not content. They're not happy. And that definitely doesn't get as much coverage as it deserves. At the end of the day, people in the industry tend to be put on a pedestal. But for me, it's a job. I'm no different to anybody else in the world. I just have a job that's different from everybody else. Mm. I go to work. I do my job. I finish work like anybody else. Um, there is an onus on people in the industry to, because of that, that people look at them as kind of like up on this pedestal and, and have these huge expe- expectations of them. And I think that that makes it quite stressful for people as well. It's, it's not all it's cracked up to be. And I think for me, the perfect example is you look at someone like Robin Williams, you know, probably one of the, the greatest comedians in, in the modern era. But at the end of the day, you know, 
you've got to go home and he's making people laugh every day, but you go home to those demons and you got to fight those demons inside every night. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, I try to understand a lot of this stuff. I feel like my brain since I was an early teenager has jumped around up and down in quite a lot of ways. And, and I do, I've been doing some talks in different cities and countries and I mean, when I'm in front of people as a bit of an introvert, I feel so alive and I'm so happy that people would turn up in countries I've never been to and hear me ramble on about stuff that I actually care about. And like, cause when I talk about strategy, I'm actually trying to talk about how to think independently mm-hmm. if that's a thing. And then you leave and I'm like, Oh, I don't, I don't know the city. You know, I was in Scandinavia last week. It was really dark and cloudy and, and uh, I would go, obviously you get to have a dinner or two, but I'm like, Fuck, is this, because I love doing the talk so much and then I feel lonely the rest of the time <laughs> and, and, and not in, in, in a way that I'm probably better, better able to handle these days. But, and, and also at the same time, knowing that melancholy and sadness, first of all, they're natural. Like mm. you, they've survived evolution because they serve some, I think, reflective purpose, you know, they, a bit of sadness well why am i feeling that way and how do i deal with it and then you can develop some of those meditation techniques of letting the past thought through uh but you still need to get those social needs met and if you've got like a brain that's on fire all the time in a world that's constantly comparing itself to itself then you got to stay active and I, i truly believe that what we were talking about finding how to express yourself nearly every day if not every day the majority of the week that's that's power. That's where I, that's what I've found most powerful. So that's autobiography. It's not science. Well, I mean, what you were just talking about, it, it's almost like being on a drug, you know, when you're out there in front of people and you've got their attention. And I mean, for me, when you can make people laugh, it's like, that's a buzz. Mm. But then when you get off that and you come home, it's like you, all of a sudden that high, you just off that high and you kind of, it's almost like you're kind of like, oh, wow, that was great, but shit, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you just slump out. And I think that kind of makes you, at least for me, it makes you a lot more emotional because of that roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. So when you are in that, that kind of, you get home and, it, you know, it's great. I come back to my kids and whatnot, but there's times where you just want your own personal space and you're in, in your head and it's times like that and you, you start really reflecting on what it is you're doing and who you're doing it for and where your head's at. I, it's just, it is, it, it gets quite intense inside, inside the head. Yeah. Hence art. How do you feel about exposing your kids at such a young age to this, the industry that you're in as well as some of the, the brain stuff that's going to follow them. I mean, for me, it was, this was kind of a, a, it's a, it's a jagged edge and we kind of, it's something we debated about for a while, but we've made the decision that we think we can try and maintain it as much as possible by not what letting them watch TV and um, trying to make their life as normal as possible because it's also an opportunity to make some really good memories. And that's something I really want to do is just have these memories that I can keep and show my kids later on in life. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, and and there's times when I when I think, is this really the right thing to do? And I question it. I do question it. Um, but I've made a decision, and I'm going to have to make a decision as they get a little bit older, as to when is the right time to take them out of the exposure and say, mm. okay, let's try and get your life as normal as possible as quickly as possible. And so you guys are doing a show together now. Yeah. What what is it? Uh, the Return of Superman. So it's um celebrity fathers raising their children for 48 hours at a time. Um, obviously, you know, you have a, a very maternal culture here in uh, Korea. So it's putting fathers in the limelight and raising the kids. And I mean, this has been, we're talking about real men and, and how much viewership it's getting around the world. I mean, this show is internationally is, is just, amazing like the feed i'm getting feedback from all over the world hmm. um but obviously yeah there's pros and cons and so when did you film um well william started we started filming on the show with william he would have been about maybe four months old and i mean bentley's been on the show ever since he was born right so this is so you're obviously a couple of years into the show yeah yeah right interesting man what are you 2019 last question what's the f if you follow up what we're discussing now and i heard you mention that you've got some thoughts and some notes and you've done some writing if you we're not going to force an agreement between each other although i'm going to commit to publishing a book next year mm. if you really stepped into one of the projects that you've been sitting on. That's a yep. Sam Hamilton project, not just you mm -hmm. acting in something. Mm -hmm. What's the project? Uh, I've got a short film that I want to direct. Um, so I'm trying to finish off a, um, a screenplay for that. And uh, was actually thinking about going over to the States and filming it in LA. Mm -hmm. um, I just spent four weeks over there in October, taking some classes and networking out there so i mean that's something i'm looking i'm looking to do hopefully next year is try and spend more time in the states and try and look at that part of the world mm -hmm. for work opportunities and just try and be a little bit more artistic over there i found that so many like-minded people over there and everyone just wants to collaborate which is mm. very refreshing for me i thought i'd go over there and everyone would be like trying to step on each other, climb the ladder, but it was the opposite. Um, man, it was great. So I've actually, uh, I'm actually looking at, uh, setting up an application for, uh, to apply for, um, green card. Uh, there's an application that you can do for people in the entertainment field who have, uh, what was the word? Um, <laughs> exponential, um, there's a special term for it. It's like people that have, have achieved a specific amount, an extended amount of success within their proven field. And it's usually yeah. entertainment, arts, sports, science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's yeah. a check, there's a checkbox on that form, which says, uh, check this box. If your kids have hundreds of thousands of more Instagram followers than you, uh, I, wish, they, they, I wish there was, yeah, what if they get was. in and you don't, <laughs> well, <laughs> they're not part of the, they're on my application i'm not on their application 
So maybe, maybe they'll be selective. That'd be hilarious. That actually be, that'd be a funny premise for a comedy sketch, my man. <laughs> uh, that would be a funny premise for a TV show, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. There's awesome. something there. Yeah, Dan, thank you so much for spending so much time talking with me today. What, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, on the internet, I guess uh, for me these days, my medium of uh, internet is probably Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have as much of a presence on uh, social media networks as much as I used to, which yeah. is probably kind of unfortunate. I kind of got a little bit uh, over it all. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, uh, Instagram, look for me, Sam Hammington, and hopefully you can uh, see more of me on YouTube next year. Uh, trying to do some more of that next year as well. Very cool. And I guess William Hammington and Bentley, Bentley Hammington. Hammington get you to the children. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's probably easier to find them than it is me. I can, I can imagine 20 years time, one of them's going to follow your footsteps and then, you know, resent you a little bit along the way and then try to burst through the Sam Hamington bubble. And the other's going to look at a, at the map and go, where's the exact, exact opposite location of Seoul and then move there and, and maybe join like Doctors Without Borders or something like that. <laughs> hey, either way, I, either way, I don't really care as long as they're happy. I, I couldn't, I couldn't care. And people ask me all the time, what do you want your kids to do? I'm like, whatever. As long as they're happy doing what they're doing, I've done my job. Well, to end on a corny note, whenever I make my awkward introduction of you, which is definitely not every day, it's probably every, every few months, sometimes when I'm traveling and you know, some, there's some connection to Korea, I'm like, there's my boy Sam. My second thought, the thought that's always under there is like, I hope he's happy, man. I really do. You know, so. I, you know, I remember there was a... Um, there was a Will Smith movie. What was it called? The Search for Happiness or something Pursuit. something along those lines. Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. I think that's what life is. You know, are people always happy? No. Hell no. But what it's about is about finding that happiness. And that in itself is, for me, is a form of happiness. Yeah. You know, watching my kids, watching my kids slide on a slide for 45 minutes as boring as it could be to the average person. Hey, I'm pretty happy when I'm in that space. Yeah. I, I try not to dwell on the negatives. You know, it, it it's bound to happen, but you just got to keep finding that happiness. And it could be 30 seconds at a time. It could be a day at a time. It could be a month at a time, whatever works for you. Yeah. So I just saw this silly Venn diagram. I know you're trying to end in a really meaningful way, but I just saw this Venn, <laughs> Venn, Venn diagram um, of, and that's like the Korean orator in you, man. Like the Koreans do some, uh, they get meaningful and deep and sentimental and nostalgic because of all the mm -hmm. stuff that country's been through. So I can hear a bit of an echo of that in you. But as you were talking, I saw this Venn diagram and it says uh, two circles. One's really, really small. It's like a dot. And inside that dot, it says, try not to think about negative things. And then there's this massive circle, which is thinking about negative things. <laughs> Because <laughs> often the people who say they try not to, like they're spending 80% of their time thinking about it. And then they're like, oh, try not to, try not to. Oh. <laughs> That's the reality of it. It's, it's, it's those nights where you go to bed and you can't get to sleep. And you, the only way you can get to sleep is if you think of the color black. Have you ever had one of those nights before? Mate, I barely slept in my 20s and I'm much better at it now. And I've not thought of the color black to get to sleep. <laughs> I tell you what, it's pretty tragic when you get to that stage. Your mind is just racing. You're like, 
black, black, black. All you can think of is color black. I hear, I hear. We could have yeah, that 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 what you just explained in that diagram is exactly what it is. I'll <laughs> sure. I'll you, I, you, know what? you put you, what you do is you need to put some rose colored glasses on it because that's what it really is. You well, put I guess rose colored glasses trying to put a, t a different spin on what reality really is. There you go. I love it. All right. Well, maybe that's what I'll do when I, I post the link to the show. Sam, my man, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. Make make that art, dude. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. All right. Peace. Talk to you later.